I don't know how many of the countries estimated 80 to 85 million evangelicals reach for a Tim Keller sermon or keynote when they're stuck at home in the time of coronavirus or tune them in on a needed walk, cycle, or run. But it's surely a significant number, whether among the faithful or among university leaders, journalists, and politicians or innovators trying to understand what makes U.S. Christians tick. Keller's writing or speaking has played a consequential role in the lives of countless people, believers and non-believers, the vast majority of whom have never met him. Listening to him, Keller is calm, understated in demeanor, and serious, in some ways more scholar than charismatic pastor. Last December, New York Times contributing writer Pete Weiner, who's also a colleague at EPPC and who joins us on the podcast today, wrote a terrific profile piece about Tim in The Atlantic, and in it, he flags Tim's unusual gift of recall. It's almost like Keller houses in real time a database of philosophical ideas that are constantly on hand to deepen a given insight. Charles Taylor, the late Peter Berger, or Lamansani. It's as if they're in the room, whether in this conversation or in a sermon. Yet if Keller's tone is unpretentious, his careful thinking, his paragraphs, are consistently headed somewhere. Time and again, in sermon after sermon and talk after talk, he lands the plane. And listeners come to trust that. Where's this gift come from? As he discusses today, Tim spent nine years as a rural pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, before leaving for Manhattan in 1989 with Kathy and their three sons to launch Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Since retiring in 2017 as that fast-growing church's senior pastor, he's chaired the board of Redeemer City to City, which has already planted more than 500 churches in major cities throughout the world. Tim once told a group of younger pastors they should wait to write their first book until they're at least halfway to two-thirds into pastoral ministry. Why? Well, you get the sense that he himself focused on the intrinsic work of really learning the craft of the pastoral vocation first. In blue-collar Hopewell, that meant nine years of showing up faithfully at weddings, funerals, graduations, and navigating the economic hardships of small-town life. For three decades since, alongside Wall Street Titans, in partnership with diverse churches in New York City, that meant honing his preaching and practicing better and better leadership delegation, as you'll hear him describe. But on writing, Keller practiced what he preached. He published his first of 19 books, including five New York Times bestsellers, in 2008, nearly two decades into his second major pastoral role as founding pastor of Redeemer. And as for journalists, in the 21-year history of Faith Angle, he's been a fan favorite. I still talk to journalists who attended his 2013 visit at Mike Cromery's invitation and were moved by what he said. In that conversation, also linked in the show notes in its entirety, Tim cites a bevy of contemporary scholars as though they're right in the room, with data about New York City church growth readily on hand. In 1989, there were... Uh about 100 of those churches, about 9,000 Manhattan residents in it, which is less than 1% of the population. And in, 19, in 2009, there was uh, about 200 of those churches. Uh, my church helped start about a third of them. And there is a now 34,000 Manhattan residents in those churches. One of our current advisors says that before hearing him at Faith Angle, she'd never heard anyone anywhere talk like that about Christianity. As per usual, 
Tim Folds, gifted pastor and Big Think scholar into one. You'll hear him talk today about the coronavirus and its awful toll on New York City, about his heroic wife, Kathy, who co-authored The Meaning of Marriage, and a brand new set of three booklets on birth, death, and marriage, and about tribalism, populism, and formation, both in times that are grim and in times, again, full of promise. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Tim Keller, for uh, being with us on this Faith Angle Forum podcast. We appreciate it very, very much. I know this is, even though we're all confined, this is still a busy time for you. So thanks for for carving out the time for us. Glad to be here. Wanted to start first with this pandemic. You're not a doctor, you're a pastor, so I'm not going to ask you about epidemiology, but maybe a a 15,000 foot view question just to kick us off, which is what are some of the main challenges and some of the main possibilities facing the churches in this moment? And what do you want it to be said of of Christians when the history of this pandemic is written? Well, every church has ministries going in three directions. There's the, you might say, there's the vertical ministry. How do you worship? In other words, how do you sing God's praises to God? Then there's the two kinds of horizontal ministries. There's the inward look. How do you form people? How do you form us as Christians? How do you build people up? That's community. That's formation. And then there's the outward horizontal, which is how do you sing God's praises to the world? How do you lift up and alert them to who Jesus is and what he's done? And interestingly enough, the worship, temporarily, the worship issue isn't a problem for middle class and upper middle class churches because the live stream option is second best, but okay. Formation, even at least to start with, isn't too bad because people move a lot of their fellowship and their study and their classes online. The outward testimony is harder to judge. And I think it depends on just what the aftermath is going to be. So if you want to ask me more about that, I I think I'd rather not ramble on. In other words, the church has got to minister to the world, but what, what will the devastation be? I can think of several things. And the church is going to have to adapt. Its ministry to the world will depend on what the problems are. But then you notice I kept saying middle class, upper middle class. The poorer churches are being devastated by this. So in uh, New York, a lot of the churches in poorer communities, number one, they have a lot more deaths because the people cannot work from home and they also are living in much closer quarters. And and so I know relatively, relatively small churches that are, that are having eight, nine, 10, 11 deaths. Then secondly, they can't move everything online. They don't have the live stream ability. The people very often don't have ability to do things at home, you know, Wi-Fi and all that sort of thing. And then worst of all, they're unemployed. So, I mean, there's plenty of churches in which virtually everybody in the church has lost their job. So I think the difference between the middle class and upper middle class churches and the churches amongst the working class and the poor are the differences are massive. And therefore, to ask that question, the answer is going to be very different depending on where they are on that in that socioeconomic spectrum. Yeah, that's interesting. So in a ways there are two callings maybe that at least the middle and upper middle class churches have which is the, the calling to the outside world but also perhaps to the churches that you just described the blue collar churches which are going to be devastated in a way that the others are not actually you could almost there are probably a lot of coinciding there though because so for example if a church like one of the redeemer churches in manhattan which came out of the church i founded in Manhattan, people are safer. First of all, a lot of people have second homes and they've left. 
or they've just gone home to other places. The number of cases isn't as bad. People can more, more likely, or white-collar people can work from home. But if you go out into the boroughs, in the Bronx and Queens and all that, that's where the churches are really being decimated. Now, if the middle-class church connects to a church out there and then tries to help them minister to their neighborhood, their neighborhoods are more devastated than the Manhattan neighborhoods. So you could actually do two things at once if you basically adopted a church and said, here's a church of two or 300 people and 80% of them are unemployed and they've lost 12 people, have died and their neighborhoods are troubled. And they, they don't even have the money to keep their own lights on. And yet they would like to minister to the neighborhood. How do we do that? Well, a middle class, upper middle class church could partner with them. And that makes perfect sense because you're, it, you know, you're, you're empowering that, empowering Christian brothers and sisters in that neighborhood to reach out to other people in that neighborhood. They'll do a better job than we would. Because if you come in there, it can be kind of paternalistic. Right. You know, you, you know, you come in, we're going to save you. So I think that may be a way forward, though. I'm the only person I know talking about it at this point because it's so early. Yes. In pandemic that nobody's really, I think, getting together and organizing this sort of thing. Tim, can I ask just real quick, what about the sort of psychology for individuals, for individual believers? You know, it's, I've heard you talk a lot about the idea of faithful presence within in recent years and what that means, you know, but now we're on the sidelines. We're kind of waiting. We're kind of treading water a bit before getting back for the individual listener to this conversation. How should we think about it psychologically with the the horizon in mind? It's very frustrating, by the way. Everybody feels handcuffed. You can do very little, especially somebody my age. I mean, your, your children and your friends will yell at you if you do anything very, what they would consider risky. But you really can do the sort of thing we're doing right now. In fact, every single day, I'm usually on the phone or on some kind of video call with people who are actually, we're informing each other. In other words, I'm probably telling you some things you hadn't thought of. And we're basically in the planning stage. And I know enough to know that even though, how do I say it? After years of planning, my wife used to say, Kathy used to say to me, how come what you actually do is so far away from the plan that you wrote up. (laughs) Like in in the year 1995, this is my plan for the church for the next three years. And then three years later, it doesn't really look that much like it. And I said, ah, Kath, I've learned this. The value of the planning process is not so much the plan, but the way it prepares you for whatever actually happens. The planning process prepares you so that when reality comes along, the plan usually assumes this is going to be the reality from 1995, 1998. And it's only at the very best, you're about half right. But then the plan has gotten you ready for whatever curveballs reality sends you. And I think right now, that's the best thing we can do. Though there is, uh, I mean, obviously, there also can be real outreach. I mean, individual, you can do individual pastoral care. You can get on these phone calls and you could pray with people. There's a lot of that that can be done. But when it comes to really making a dent in the problem, I think we're still in the planning stage. Besides that, all these scenarios, they vary so much. When I talk to financial types or political types or medical types, I just, I don't get the same, the same predictions. As individuals are very frustrated, but you, if I would say, find three or four people this week that you can bless, find three or four people that you can affirm, you can pray with, you can reach out to, in the very beginning of the week, think of who those are going to be and then contact them. And that gives you much more of a sense of, okay, I'm doing something. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard as many references to Rodney Stark as I have in the last two weeks in the uh, the rise of Christianity 
Because in my conversations with pastors and theologians, there's this real longing to want to use this moment for the church to be at its best and to, to figure out a way to leave an imprint in people's lives and really an imprint on the world in a way similar to what Stark talks about with the rise of Christianity in the first few centuries when there were plagues in the Roman Empire and elsewhere, and Christians were known for their love and their care. And I think a lot of people are really trying to think through in a conscientious way what that looks like. Well, here's the problem. Christians were the healthcare workers. In fact, if David Bentley Hart's right, I mean, I read his book, Atheist Delusion, some years ago, and I never really tracked down all the different references. But he said, I think rightly so, that the idea of hospitals and orphanages and things, so many of those institutions we take for granted now, these were not things that Romans, the Greeks and the Romans did not have them. The Christians had them. So the Christians were the healthcare provider. They were the ones that stayed there. We can't do that role now because you've got to have a degree to be a healthcare provider. And of course, there's plenty of Christians. I mean, I, I can tell you lots of stories of Christians who have been out there and have lost their lives as healthcare providers, but there's others too. So that there's Christians aren't going to get the same kind of uh, historic credit for putting their lives on the lines as healthcare providers. And there's really nobody else that really ought to do it. So in other words, healthcare providers need to do it. Otherwise, the deaths are going to be worse. But if other people try to do it, then what will happen is that they're actually going to be spreading the disease. So you cannot, Christians cannot just step into Rodney Stark's Roman Empire plagues the same way. Here, I'll give you an idea. After 9-11, Redeemer tried to figure out what do we do and it took a while to figure this out because we had a, there was a combination of things. On the one hand, we lost lots of income because a lot of people lost their jobs and left the city. And yet more people were coming to church than ever before. So we actually had 25% more people coming and 25% less money to do anything. However, we took up a major offering, which we desperately needed for our own salaries. But we said, that's going to go to somebody out there. And then people from around the country started sending money in to us, quite a lot. I can't remember. I think our offering was about $300,000. But overall, we ended up having $2 million to give away. So here's what we did. We, and it was a brilliant idea. It wasn't mine, by the way. That's why I can say that. What we did was we decided there, there were something like 17,000 small businesses that immediately went up in smoke south of 14th Street after 9-11. Lots and lots of people worked there. It was kind of like what we're happening, what was happening here across the country happened right there. And we said, because we have this money, we let it be known out there that if you can prove that you work south of 14th Street, if you can just show us a pay stub or something like that, we will help you. And we kept careful records. We had almost no overhead. We hired one Christian MSW social worker to go with the two we had on staff. We had two social work professionals on our staff already. And we hired one more. And in a year, we all that money went out the door. And we kept careful records. We made sure that there was some. And a lot of times, by the way, people came, they needed, and they couldn't prove that they were south of 14th Street. In which case, we gave them about $100 worth of free Metro cards and things like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't a wasted trip for them. We gave them two or three months of free public transportation and that kind of thing. And it was an unusual situation. We don't keep doing that. I don't, I don't think a church should do that in general. I think you ought to give that to other agencies. But we felt because of the crisis, we had to show some way in which we were spending ourselves on people outside of our walls, not just the people inside. My belief is churches are going to have to figure out ways to do that. But it won't be just you know taking care of the sick as healthcare workers. 
Yeah, well, adjusting to facts and circumstances. And then once churches figure out the right thing to do, it'll be obvious to to everybody. I want to pivot to your, your Hopewell years, because most people know about your pastorship at, at Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, but I would venture to say a lot fewer know that you served as a pastor at, at Hopewell Pres in Hopewell, which is a rural town in Virginia. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned as a pastor there and contrast your ministry there with what it's like to be a, a minister in, in Manhattan? Yeah. No. by the way, the name of the church was West Hopewell Presbyterian Church, just for the record. Well, I actually think in some ways that that church is a more was a more normal church than the one I had in New York City. I think the ministry there was a more, probably more transfer. In other words, what I learned there is more transferable to more places. I do think that New York was a such an unusual thing that I don't think that it's what I did there necessarily is a great model for everybody else in the world. Was it unusual because of the people there or because of what you had in, envisioned as a church? Well, the density of the population. The fact that church got large, the unusual nature of the population, it's extremely transient, maybe not quite as bad as Washington, D.C., but similar, extraordinarily ambitious people, which is a very awesome, also like Washington. So you have very ambitious people, very, very talented people, and lots of them, they're always, there's a huge churn, almost like a campus ministry, that's to say... It's a difference between a, a professional basketball team and a college basketball team. A college basketball team has to be built around the coach because the, even the stars, they just come and they go. In the same way, in a place like New York City, it has to be more built around the minister, around the preacher. Whereas in West Topo, I learned how to just be with people. You had to be in everybody's life. And I may have said this to you before, I'm not sure. In a normal church, the pastoring sets up the preaching, which means people, because you are in their life, you're there when their children are dying or in jail or, you know, their marriage are breaking up. And if they assume that you are wise enough to walk them through that, then you are in a position where they'll listen to you when you preach. Otherwise, it's just blah, blah, blah. I mean, these are blue collar folks and they hear lots of people going. It's a little bit like in, the, in those Charlie Brown cartoons where the kids would talk to each other. But whenever the parents would talk, it was just like, wow, 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 wow. And I really think for a lot of folks, you know, they hear all this great rhetoric, but it just, by the way, explains a lot of, a lot of political issues here, but let's not go there. But in, in other words, they, they can't tell differences between what I would consider good preaching, great preaching, bad preaching. So anyway, it was really, really important for me just to be with people. So my pastoring set up the preaching. In New York City, the preaching basically sets up the pastoring. People say, oh, he's an expert. He's great. He re I really love that talk. Then now I'll come and talk with you. Except in a place like New York, even though I talk to people constantly, three years later, I was talking to a whole different set of people. I would be talking to people every day, all day, and yet they didn't stay. And so I don't think in many ways, Redeemer is famous because lots of famous people went there and lots of people went there. I'm not sure it's the best model for the the average place in the world. I recall in, in Pete's marvelous Atlantic profile piece a couple of months ago, you guys talked about it being a very small percentage who actually goes on to college from, from Hopewell, maybe, maybe even five or 6%. And that trust was so important to cultivate as you just described. And I wonder if you might comment at this being sort of a populist moment or last five or six years, feeling that more on the dynamic where some people in the middle of the country can feel like 
the policy is being set by the elites on the coasts. After all, the president, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy are all from either New York or California. It's only McConnell who isn't of that sort of top five group. And sort of feeling that dynamic on the receiving end as mainstream Americans, middle Americans. How did you feel that, see that? Does that stay with you in some way, having been in Manhattan for so long? And, and how, how is that felt? Well, it depends on when you spend your time. And I got to say, Josh, you don't look old to me. And therefore, I want you to know that the first 30 years, wherever you spend your first 30 years are going to have a lot more of a formative effect on you than, than the second 30 years. So I've been in New York City now for 31 years. And even though my children, I got, there's three generations of Kellers here. My children and grandchildren have grown up here, are growing up here. They'll feel like this is their formative Part. But to me, Hopewell and Pennsylvania, small town Pennsylvania, was much more formative to me. But I've been here for 30 years, and therefore I do feel very Jekyll Hyde. <laughs> so I really do understand the populist mindset. I do. It's always been there, but it's got it's exacerbated. I'll tell you why. And I'm a political amateur. But when the left was mainly about economic issues, it was mainly about lifting up the poor and the working class and unions and that sort of thing. There wasn't as much of a bifurcation, I think, between your average real blue collar person and the intelligentsia who was a left-wing person. There was a, some solidarity there. But when the left sort of moved into saying, look, if you're an Orthodox Jew or a Muslim or a Catholic or an evangelical Christian, your social values are stupid. In other words, they moved toward lifting up sexual issues and sex and gender and that sort of thing, then that created much more of a cleavage because so many blue-collar people are religious. And I was in a blue-collar town. And by the way, when I go back to my little blue-collar town, there's big Trump banners everywhere, which doesn't surprise me a bit because I do think that's what, that really was what happened. So anyway, I understand the populist idea and the alienation they feel from the elites. It's gotten worse and worse and worse. And I've been in the middle of the elite area. So I actually do feel almost equally riven. And I'm reading the New York Times. I say, look, I see why this, that the people who read the New York Times are actually less influential across the country than they have ever been. 40 years ago, New York Times were, were kind of centrist, liberal centrist. And most people took it seriously. So if they said something, everybody thought, okay, that's important in the New York Times. Now I can just tell because I'm, I got a foot in both worlds as a, a New Yorker and as an evangelical. I got a foot in both worlds. And now I really see that so many things are written in the New York Times. People are just rolling their eyes and half the country. So I don't know. I guess I'm answering your question by saying I, I do see both and I do feel both and therefore I'm kind of riven. Just before we leave the West Hopewell experience, over your career, and Hopewell plays into this some, but obviously so does Redeemer, what have you enjoyed most and least about being a pastor? Well, the pastor, pastoring part. <laughs> uh -huh. Pastoring in the sense of pastoring individually or sermons? Yes, and I'm making a joke, but I say what, what I most love and dislike about my ministry is there's basically three parts to being a minister. You might say there's preaching, pastoring, and leading. So preaching or teaching is speaking to a group. Pastoring is one-on-one -on -one counseling, shepherding. And then leading is, again, saying, here's where we're going to go. Traditionally, by the way, that Jesus Christ was considered a prophet, a priest, and a king. 
And so those are analogies. Your prophetic ministry is your preaching. Pastoral ministry is your priestly ministry. And leadership is your kingly ministry. And I would say I was a better, I was a better preacher than the other two. But I think the one that was hardest and most satisfying was the pastoring. Because on the one hand, I miss it. In New York City, if I made myself too pastorally available with such a big church, it just it didn't work at all. Too many people would line up. There was one point it was there was a six-month waiting period to see me. Because I I always said, I'm going to see everybody. Anybody who wants to see me about anything at all, I'm a pastor. And so I only had so many slots in a week. And so people were lining up. They were, they were waiting months to see me. At a certain point, my leaders came around me and said, you can't do that. I mean, it's, this is wrong. First of all, they should be looking to other people who they need more pastoral care than to see somebody once a year. So I missed that terribly. And yet I do remember pulling out of Hope of Virginia and moving up to Philadelphia. When I did, I realized I was just so drained by all the, the counseling. At any given time in my church, there were four, at least four, three or four marriages falling apart. And back in those days, you went to your pastor. You did not go to a, you know, a counselor. You went to the pastor. And so, I mean, I, in the 70s and 80s, I had so much counseling experience. Hope of Virginia had no counselor in it. And there was no therapist. There was no social worker. There was no psychologist. There was nobody. If you wanted to get to a licensed counselor, you had to travel. And so everybody went to their church pastors. And I was drained by it. So I missed it and was drained by it. So that's the one that's the thing I both loved and hated about it. Could you tell a little bit about, about the people who have been most formative, who shaped your Christian pilgrimage, you as a person? I know that in part, Kathy has been a huge figure. And I think yeah. people would be interested in what she's meant to you over the years and what she's brought to you as both as a pastor and, and as a person. Well, as living people, in other words, not writers, but living people have had a big impact. Yeah, Kathy and I are both the number one influence on each other. Part of this is because neither of us was very pot. We're both social butterflies. We were, we're both, you know, not popular kids, egghead types, got good grades, had very little social life. And even when we were in seminary, we were kind of overlooked, by the way. Every time we tried to, it's a long story, but every, every time we really tried to uh, apply for something, we're always turned down because we, we weren't particularly seen as bright and shining lights. We were not seen as the best and brightest. So we kind of glommed onto each other and taught each other quite a lot. Past that, Dr. Edmund Clowney, who had been the president of Westminster Seminary years ago and died quite a long time ago because he was, he was 30 or 40 years older than me. I not only met him when I was in seminary, though he didn't teach at my seminary, but he took care, you know, he took care to keep up with me and at a certain point, we did some things together when I was in the ministry. He had a very, very big impact on me and had a, a lovely impact on me. But by and large, I did not, partly because I'm a baby boomer, and I, th I think baby boomers have not had a lot of mentors. I did not have a mentor. Kathy and I mentored each other. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, how much they shaped you? Well, that's right. I guess the next step up, even though you would say, well, these were authors, they weren't people really in your life. Well, Kathy, when she became a Christian, basically, by reading the Narnia Chronicles, Kathy was a precocious, very, very smart teenager. And when she was 12 or so, she wrote C.S. Lewis four times at least. She may have written some others, which we don't remember, but because she kept his letters. And so we have four of his letters and they were very, very warm. And she felt very uh, much like, oh, I know him. He's a friend of mine. She actually went to Britain when she was 
14 for the first time and got to his house and knocked on the door thinking he was going to be there and got his brother, Warney Lewis, and found out he died just a few months before. And she mastered his material and then even wrote a, a senior thesis at Allegheny College on it, on C.S. Lewis's mythopoeic view of literature. When I met her, she just snowed me with C.S. Lewis. And she doesn't take, we wouldn't see him just as somebody who we read, but as almost somebody came that close to being a, a mentor, that close. So we, we are, and Tolkien too, though Tolkien only fiction, because what you have with Lewis is you have both his fiction and his essays. And with Tolkien, you've got only his fiction, but yeah, we're totally immersed in it. And if somebody says, how often have you read Lord of the Rings? Though it's probably not true now, last four or five years, we haven't done it. But at one point, I guess I was always reading. I would say, I'm always reading it. How often you've read Lord of the Rings? I'm always reading. Now, I have to admit, just the other day, Kathy said, you know, we haven't read it recently, which means we need to get back into it. So, you know, it's had a massive impact on our imagination, the way we talk to people. So, We understand that one reason you haven't been reading Lord of the Rings is that you've been writing books together, booklets, life and marriage and death. My wife and I, the whole time, have been playing this game at home called Why Are You Doing It That Way? And it isn't working out very well because we're always criticizing each other in the COVID you know, space. But we recall listening to a wonderful retreat that you and Kathy did together for, I believe, some folks at, at Redeemer, where she tells this story about plates and getting your attention. Yeah, well, that's also in the Meaning of Marriage book. Yes, yes. We read the book, too. David Brooks mentioned that recently on this podcast, actually, with Anne. But what was that all about? And how does how did marriage fuel better just last week, somebody, I was on a podcast with a couple, and the woman said, tell Kathy, I love the plate, mashing plates thing. And I said, just remember what Kathy tells women, you can only do it once. Don't waste your, your plates. The story, simple story, was when I, starting a church is a lot like starting a business. When you're starting a church or a business, you overwork. You never come home. And you're always thinking about it and always overworking. And I always said to my wife and my children, though, my children were little, I said, for a couple of years here, I'm not going to have a balanced life. But then we're going to get this church up and going, and it's going to be great for us all. And after a few years, she said, okay, startup's over, right? When are you going to start to relax? And I, I couldn't. I mean, I've just gotten now used to a certain level of work. After two years, she started telling me, it's time to, for you to pull back a little bit. i got to see more of you. A year went by, and one day, I'm in my, the same apartment now. One day I come in the door, which I'm looking at, and Kathy was out on the balcony overlooking the East River, and I suddenly heard plates break, and I walked over, what was it? And this was our wedding china that we had been given, and when she saw me look in the door, she obviously hit the plate the first time to get my attention. I walked out of the door, then she smashed another one, and she said, she said, this is what you're doing to our marriage. You know, I, I don't remember all the rhetoric, but this is what you're doing to our marriage. I said, this is our wedding china. I said, uh, you can't keep on going like this. You're not going to have a marriage. And I was white as a sheet. I came on out. I think she smashed a third plate. And I sat down and said, I'm listening. Now, two things she'll tell you as she tells the story. Number one, she said, it wasn't like Tim turned around immediately. It was really just the first time I really, really heard her. And then we spent the next year, the rest of our lives, fighting over how much work I did. Okay. Nevertheless, she said, uh, it got my attention. It was good. Secondly, she said, she was really glad I sat down when I did because, maybe you know this story, 
part of the story is she actually had only gotten, you know how wedding china over the years, you lose some cups. So we, she had three saucers without cups. So she could waste those. <laughs> so she was really glad I sat down and started talking turkey before she got to that fourth one because she didn't want to break any more of the uh, saucers. Anyway, also, she always tells people <laughs> that you can only do it once because the next time, because I thought she was absolutely furious. And afterwards, she says, no, I'm not furious. I just can't get your attention. And there was at one point I said, I think you're manipulating me because I thought you were really in tears and you're just going nuts. And I, she said, no, I thought it out. I was just trying to get your attention. And in perspective, it was it was great. But at the time, I actually felt like, oh, this is just you know, this is theatrical. And she says, of course it's theatrical. <laughs> anyway, so that's the story. It was meant to be theatrical and it worked. That's a great, that's a great story. I want to pivot a little bit to the intersection of faith and politics, which you've written on, I think wisely and, and at a distance, but still dealt with. I think we both agree that faith is too often subordinate to partisan politics and political ideology on all sides, with the latter being the prism through which too many Christians interpret the former. And I'd say that too many Christians are characterized by their tribal commitments rather than the understanding of justice and human teleology. I just got a note yesterday from a mutual friend, and he said, Northern evangelicals did oppose slavery, but Southern evangelicals almost to a man supported it. Very few people acted outside of their expectations of their tribe. Do we generally use religion mainly to support our pre-existing assumptions and interests? Is evangelicalism particularly guilty of that offense? That was a question that I wanted to pose to you, which is, can you speak to why you think that that happens as, as often as it does? I, and I, I'll just say one other thing, which is when I began my Christian pilgrimage sort of in high school and college, it's that I wasn't really a Christian before then. If you had asked me then, when I got to this point in my life, how I would view Christians, I would have guessed that moral lives and minds had been transformed and for example, in politics, that more people would have used faith to interpret politics. And I would say that in my experience in politics, it's actually the opposite, which is politics has very often been used to interpret and shape faith. I wonder if, if, A, if you agree with that as a general matter, and B, why you think that's the case and what, what we do about it. Well, I think I must have said this in the Atlantic. I know I did say this in the Atlantic interview is that evangelicalism, first of all, Protestant Christianity, Christianity is more culturally flexible than other religions. Ed, my that mentor, Ed Clowney, I mentioned him. He said, it's interesting, there's no book of Leviticus in the New Testament. So the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament was a way of making Jews culturally different. They can only wear certain things, eat certain things, and that made you separate. Very similar to Muslims, there's lots and lots of rules that keep you separate. And Christianity doesn't have those kinds of rules that really set you off culturally. So you eat and say and wear what everybody else does. And what that means is, on the one hand, Christians are more culturally flexible. There's a great book called The Bible and Mission by Richard Baucom, a Scottish biblical professor. He just looks at the stats and, and says almost every other religion besides Christianity is essentially still largely demographically dominant where it began. You know, so Hinduism is largely in India, Buddhism is largely in East Asia, Islam is still largely where it started, but Christianity is not. Christianity actually spread, and it's partly because it's so culturally diverse. 
And then what's the dark side of that, Pete? I mean, the dark side of that is because it's culturally adaptable, it can overadapt. Mm-hmm. It overadapts to culture. Mm-hmm. That's it. It can reach all tongues, tribes, people, and nations because it does not demand that you, if you're Chinese and you become a Christian, you still can be Chinese. On the other hand, can it buy into the idols, you might say, where the, yeah, I'm going to say the idols of every culture has idols. Some are individualistic, some are materialistic, some are pragmatistic, and therefore Christianity can just buy in. I think that's that's the danger. Now, do American evangelicals, are they worse than others? And I would say yes. And that's another question. If you want to ask me, I'll be happy to take it. Sure. <laughs> well, sure. You teed it up nicely. Why, why do you think it, that is the case? Because we're a big voting block. There's a woman named Lydia Bean. I haven't finished the book. She teaches sociology at Baylor. And in evidently her PhD dissertation, which I think was at Harvard, she uh, contrasted both a Baptist and a Pentecostal church in Canada and a Baptist and a Pentecostal church in America, but like near Buffalo. So these churches were only a few miles from each other. And they had identical theology, beliefs, and yet their politics were very different. And then she asked the question, why? And the, the bottom line I'm getting from it is that in Canada, evangelicals are an insignificant voting block. And so there's nobody going after them. And in America, they're a very significant voting block. So you have both conservative operatives doing everything they can to alienate evangelicals from the liberals and liberal operatives doing everything they can to alienate the rest of the country from evangelicals. And so we're constantly being pummeled over certain things. That's just not happening in Canada. It doesn't happen in Australia. It doesn't happen in the UK. These are other English-speaking places where evangelicals have almost the same beliefs, but they're nowhere near as aligned politically. And I'm going to keep reading that book, but I think she's right. I don't want to say evangelicals are just have no responsibility here. But the real question is, why would American evangelicals be so much more politically aligned than their brothers and sisters in other countries that have virtually the same beliefs? And I think the answer is, there are too significant a voting block and people are fighting over them and coming after them. Yeah, I'd say that the church faces a, a pretty large challenge because I think so many of the sensibilities that are being shaped by Christians who are politically active are being shaped by the feedback loop, by the various cable networks, and there's just a lot more time that they're listening to. The people who are in church, even if you said you went to a church service in a Sunday school class, it's a limited amount of time. So my my sense is that the, the sensibilities are being shaped, and then people are interpreting it. And I, I found myself in the last year or two telling people that something that I, I didn't really believe before, which is I think churches should be, or at least some churches should be more intentional about political and cultural engagement, not in a partisan way at all, but 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 uh, but in a more fundamental way. And the way that I explain it is, if you have a kid that's 12, 13, 14 years old, and you decide that you don't want to talk to that child about sex, it's not as if that child won't have conversations about sex. It's just that he's going to have it with, with, with his classmates and people who are his peers. So you can decide as an adult whether you're going to have a conversation and try and impart your understanding, knowledge, and value system or not. But that shaping of sensibilities is going to happen. In the same way, I wonder if churches should be more intentional about about shaping those sensibilities. Oh, absolutely. But I, I don't know a good way forward. I mean, in 1975, when I started as a minister, the only input that people had in my church, my little church in Virginia, they did listen to Christian radio. 
And I do remember in the late 70s, a politicization. I remember hearing it because I used to listen to it, too. Because there wasn't a, there wasn't a whole, there, you know, you had three network, you had three TV networks, you had local TV radio stations, every, everybody had a local Christian radio station, and the local Christian radio station usually just did Bible exposition. But I sensed by the early 80s a change with Reagan, by the way, where somebody decided we're going to be starting to talk more about political issues on Christian radio. But before that, you know, they read the local Richmond Times Dispatch and they listened to Christian radio and the networks and, I had a tremendous amount of input. I had power over the way they shaped issues like sex and gender and race and things like that because they weren't hearing much from anybody else. And now it's crazy, utterly crazy. And your kids too, by the way. I mean, I actually, when my son, my oldest son's first child was born, he said, you know, dad, when I was uh, 13 years old, if somebody wanted to talk to me, they could talk to me at school. But if they wanted to talk to me, they have to call. And I, you would know who was calling, or they have to write me a letter, and I would know. You would, you know, my parents would know who's writing you a letter. He basically said you had almost complete control over who I talked to, and he said now it's impossible. That's a sea change. I don't hear people talking about it. I don't know that the church has adapted. I don't even know, as a churchman, how we adapt. I'm not sure yet. So I think it's one of the big projects. There's three big ones, by the way, the church is facing right now. I'll just tell you that the one is, how do you talk about the good news to highly secular people? What Charles Taylor called people who are in a closed world. He says they're closed off to transcendence. Secondly, how do you form people? And we just talked about this. How do you form people as Christians in a world that is far more porous than it used to be? So you've got all this stuff coming at your Christians and your kids. The third is, how do we deal with political polarization as Christians? I do think that's the third big issue. It's undermining our, both our ability to form people and to reach people. So number one and two are maybe more basic. The political polarization, though, is, I think, a crisis. And American evangelicals are just being sucked into it, including younger evangelicals in places like Washington and New York who are moving toward the MSNBC rather than Fox News, both of which are secular, secular sources. So there's a blue evangelicalism and a red evangelicalism coming up. And I think that's a crisis too. Those are the three big crises, the big challenges we've got to deal with. If I were to just lob maybe an exit question for you, Tim, although hopefully Pete's got one more because there's always such richness coming from Pete. But if that's the case, right, that there's a lot more politicization of journalism today, if people are stuck, whether on iPhone or otherwise, on the cable news networks and the Chiron is always beckoning for our attention, if we're more tribal, if we're more hyper-partisan, as Pete and others have been describing, do you see a little glimmer of hope in this death moment? Well, on the political polarization, amongst younger Christians, yes. And it's mainly non-white, younger Orthodox Christians, both Catholic, evangelical. And when I say non-white, what's interesting is non-white people are not as secular or as individualistic. So they're not quite as quick to just buy the idea that you have to create yourself. They're much more oriented toward loyalty, family, that sort of thing. So they don't buy a lot of the progressive stuff. On the other hand, because they're non-white, they've experienced racism. They're not idyllic about the past, the United States past. And therefore, they are also not so quick to buy the, the right-wing stuff either. So I actually think Black, Hispanic, and Asian Orthodox Christians give me a lot of hope. 
not always, not all, all of them, but most of them are willing to pull together and come together and talk. You're asking me for a glimmer of hope. There might be others, but that's a short answer. Tim, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit and share with people uh, in terms of your own faith journey, because you're a person who has an intellectual and an academic bent. And I think you've told me before even that your own journey of faith was, was one that was very much through the mind and through the intellectual side of things. But in the end, of course, to be a Christian is, is not an intellectual ascent. It's something that has to do with the human heart and the affections of the heart to Christ how do you explain to, to people, believers or unbelievers, what that means and what does it mean to you? How did, how did your heart end up being won over to Jesus, who is a figure that you have never seen and you've read about? How did that happen? And then also I'd be interested in how you think you are a different person because you're a Christian than you would have been had that conversion ever taken place. The last one is just, that's a corker of a question. I'm not sure I even have a good short answer for that one, but let me give you the first one. I think in my Reason for God book, I give an illustration I've used over the years with people to say, everybody lives their lives on the basis of answers to the big questions that can't be proven empirically. Like, you know, what is right and wrong? You can't prove that. What should human beings be doing? What does a good society look like? Okay, what's the meaning of life? And so I said, how do, you, how do you make decisions about any of those things? I said, the thoughtless approach is, is to do the sociology of knowledge thing, which is, this is Peter Berger. Basically, you find most plausible the views of the people that you want to like you. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's sociology of knowledge. If you have this group of people and you want them to like you, then for some reason, everything they say seems so reasonable. And don't be a pawn like that. On the other hand, how do you think this out? And I said, it's a combination of both intuition and reason and experience. And so I give this example. I said, now, I need a new personal assistant, okay? So how am I going to decide? So I get a group of individuals, and I boil it down to these three, and I'm looking at the references, and I'm looking at all this stuff. And on the basis of reason, it's all basically reason, largely, I'm trying to figure out who is going to be the best person. I can't know totally ahead of time. And so I finally get to the place where I said, probably it's this person. But see, reason can only get you to the place of probability. So I interview them. I listen to the references. But I said, then I have to hire them, which, of course, is an is a act of faith. And it's scary, by the way, as you know. Because whenever you hire somebody, it's so hard to fire somebody. And if they're not working out, it's just awful. So every time you hire somebody, it's, just a, it's a huge act of faith. But I said, in a year or two, I'll know. Because I said, in a year or two, maybe I will be absolutely sure that I, my reason was right. So I said, I can think to the place of probability, but I can only commit into certainty. I can only be certain if I've committed. And I said, it's very similar with Jesus. How do you fall in love with Jesus? You, you do a lot of rational work. You, if you say, oh, I can't even believe the Bible even tells me who this Jesus is. Then I start to read F.F. F. Bruce's, the New Testament documents, are they reliable, or Craig Blomberg. Of course, these other guys, and they we say, wait a minute, these are historically reliable. I, you know what? This actually is telling me something about who Jesus was. Okay, that's rational. Then I get to the place where I see what Jesus says in the gospel. I can know you personally if you do this. Okay, now I'm at the place where I have to hire him, as it were. And that's scary. And if on the basis of my reason, I decide to hire him, I said, several years in, it works. Several years in, he's real. Several years in, 
my heart has been captured by him. Or not, by the way, there's people who say, I got there, and then, then you have to go back and you ask yourself, well, wait a minute, who was the Jesus you thought you were committing to? But the point is, it's a combination. I said, it's not radically different than the way anybody comes into a worldview. By the way, even though we don't have time, that, that, that second question, you should ask my wife that. It's a very hard thing to get perspective on yourself. I think a question like that, you either under or over think that. You either say, oh, I don't know. And when, I, I mean, Kathy would say just the difference would be massive. And I would say the same thing about her, but it would be better to do that together. I mean, not, not just her, but I'm saying we've been married for so long. I think same thing with you. If I was going to ask you that question, I would rather have Cindy, Cindy there with you and you could talk about it together because it's not an easy, it's hard to get perspective on yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one thing I would say, and obviously Kathy knows you a lot more than than I do, is what's happened with you, and this happens with a lot of people of, of faith, which is it takes essentially who you are and it channels it in a certain way. And having known you for years and seen the fruits of your ministry, you channel it in ways that have changed lives and have healed hearts and have testified to uh, to the beauty of Christ. So that's not a bad legacy in and of itself. But thanks so much for, for carving out the time. You've been very generous with it, and so we're really grateful to you for it. Oh, the questions are great. This was very enjoyable. I wish it would go on longer. Thanks. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with leading thinkers, including the scholars and clerics who think most carefully about religion's enduring role in society. Please subscribe, tell a friend, and find more resources at faithangle.org. Thanks for listening.